Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 475. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this growing network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. This week's interview is with my friend Edwin Rutsch. Edwin is the founder of the Culture of Empathy and has spent the last couple of decades spreading empathy, helping to bridge social and political divides. He's built an academic empathy training literature database on a wiki and has launched himself as a politician. In this conversation with Edwin, we discuss his journey, his driving purpose, the value of empathy in life and politics, the empathy circle that he co-created with Lida Vaynizink, his empathy tent actions, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And please, if you would, drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Edwin Rutsch, how lovely to have you on my show. I, I have had the opportunity to meet with you, to participate in your empathy circles, get trained by you, to run empathy circles. And for those who know me, I've been loving providing or running empathy circles pretty much once a month ever since. So I owe you and Lidove, of course, uh, your co-founders of the empathy circle technique for conversation dialogue. In your own words, Edwin, how do you like to describe yourself? Oh, how do I describe myself? Well, first, I'm really grateful to, you know, that you called me to have a discussion. You know, we, we've talked before, so it's really great to uh, see you again. You'd written about empathy, and uh, so we've had different conversations about the role of empathy and the importance of empathy. So uh, thanks for reaching out, and good to yeah. talk with you. And uh, for myself, how do I describe myself? I would say an empathy activist. Um, you know, I did a lot of world traveling, uh, you know, in my younger years, traveled all over the world, was a bit of a seeker. Yeah, so maybe I was a seeker, just really seeking. And uh, about 14, 15 years ago, I came across the value of empathy and thought, wow, this is really what I was seeking. It's like, how do we connect more deeply with other people? and you know, see each other's humanity. And uh, you know, ever since then, just been working quite intensely on how do we build a more empathic culture? How do we build a movement to make uh, empathy a primary social and cultural value? Yeah. And certainly you've got a community of people I've met thanks to you, the authors, and, um, and certainly it seems that the movement is gaining traction. I want to just go back to that moment 14 years ago, Edwin, because for a lot of people, they, I, I think, struggle to find what it is that they're seeking, this notion of passion or purpose. And I, I, I don't imagine it was like a light switch moment, but describe to us what happened and how you sort of came across the aha, this is it. Yeah, it for me, I don't have these big aha, you know, the the clouds open, the light shines down. So the rain comes pouring down. <laughs> Moments, it, it, it tends to be kind of slow. It's like, you know, I grew up uh, religious and it's like, I never became like an atheist, like, oh, I got the, you know, you know, something happened. It's like slowly, 
you know, just became less and less religious to where I just don't even think about really, you know, religion per se. So it's, it's a very slow evolution. And with the empathy, it was, uh, I was making documentaries about human values. And at that time, uh, the conservatives, uh, George Bush, I think it was, uh, was talking about uh, Republican values. And I had, I sort of identified as a progressive. And I thought, well, what are progressive values? And I started interviewing, you know, people about those values. And when people started talking about uh, empathy and care being values, it's like you'd see their, their, their eyes start tearing up, you know, watering. I thought, wow, this is, you could just kind of feel that, that sort of depth, that opening, you know, that you, you, that you when, when that happens. I thought this is really important. You know, empathy seems to be really a core value. And the more I looked into it, the more it really resonated with what I'd been searching, you know, for all those years, uh, starting off very conservative, you know, fundamentalist Christian, traveling around the world, just meeting all kinds of people, starting to say, oh, I don't have all the answers. It's really about human connection, making friends everywhere uh, in the world and in all kinds of different cultures. Uh, and just seeing that uh, common humanity. So when I came across the word empathy, it was like it, it kind of named sort of that experience. And then I started looking into it. And then I uh, saw, you know, other people were, you know, like Carl Rogers, uh, if you're familiar with him, he's uh, sure. considered one of the top uh, clinical psychologists, two or three top clinical psychologists. And he had talked about the importance of empathy and laid out, you know, pretty, pretty much articulated the importance uh, of it. And, and then a little bit later, uh, uh, Barack Obama started running for office and he said, uh, you know, the country has an empathy deficit. I thought, yeah, I can work on that. I can kind of help contribute to that. And there was other, you know, writers, uh, a guy named George Lakoff, he's an academic within progressive circles who wrote about, you know, empathy being a core, uh, progressive value. And I just dug into it and dug into it. And yeah, it's just become a whole life's mission uh, now. And I must say, I, I've kind of left conservative progressive. I'm now on the empathic side. I just, I've kind of left the, those uh, political labels to really see we need to get this different sides to talk with each other. Yeah. So when you were looking at these people and their eyes were tearing up, I get the feeling it was like you were looking into the depths of humanity, that this is what was pouring through their eyes. Yeah, it was like, what was important to them? Like, right, it's like, what was really important when you, you hear that all the time, right? With people uh, on their deathbed, it's like, oh, you know, they got a new, did they, do they remember a new car they got? Do they remember, you know, a job promotion or, you know, re reaching a certain level? It's like, oh, it's the family, you know, it's the connection, the love, the care I had, you know, with, with, uh, with these people that, that was, is really important to me. So it was seeing that, you know, that, that essence of what's really important uh, at a deeper level. And uh, for me, the empathy is sensing into someone's experience. It's sort of the process of feeling into uh, each other's uh, being and our in seeing that that humanity in, in each other. So I see the empathy as sort of this gateway to, to that uh, sort of uh, awareness. And before we get into a more of a, a technical definition of empathy, when you talk about the conservative or the political spheres, 
I, I heard that you think of it more as a progressive value rather than a conservative value. Maybe qualify that and or to what extent is this notion of empathy equally appealing and deep on both sides of the spectrum? Uh, I don't see it as a progressive value anymore. I would say uh, I see kind of the lack of empathy on both sides and the empathy on both sides of the political. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I, like I said, I don't really see my I, I I don't really see myself as you know progressive per se. That I'm kind of taking the empathic approach, which means hey, I'm willing to listen to progressives. I'm willing to listen to Republicans or conservatives. And I want to bring them together to dialogue uh, with with each other. So I just wanted to be, you know, clear that I've, I've kind of moved, you know, growing up conservative, moving to a progressive. Now I've moved to this uh, sort of third point of view, which is really just seeing the humanity uh, of both sides, and just, uh, you know, just seeing that, uh, you know, they that they're not really both sides aren't really listening to each other, especially with the polarization here in the United States. It's uh, you know, it's, I think, and both sides have responsibility for that. And, and I find that when I do like empathy circles, empathic listening circles, conservatives really get it. They appreciate it. They appreciate the free speech of it. They, they appreciate the being listened to. They appreciate, so, and so both sides attack each other, but they also, both sides uh, can sort of appreciate the, actually the, the mutual listening uh, with each other. So, yeah. Presumably it's more you doing the listening than the other side still in these sort of combative uh, jousts between, between the sides. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Let me, let's go into empathy itself. Uh, and you have spent uh, a long time exploring it. And um, like me, you've probably seen that there are many different ways of, of thinking about empathy. So I'd love to hear what your version of exactly what is empathy and just how far does it go? Yeah, the, there's different threads in terms of the definitions and it can get rather uh, confusing because of the different ways uh, people define it. The, my definition is based on the work of Carl Rogers, you know, who I mentioned before. Rogerian he, therapy. Rogerian therapy, which is basically it's, you know, it's, you listen to someone in that therapeutic structure. You don't try to tell them what to do. You don't try to direct them with questions. You don't judge them. You just are present and listen to someone and hear where they are and just see what emerges. And you may reflect back your understanding to make sure that you hear them correctly and that they feel that you hear and understand them. So it's that sense of feeling into, sensing into the experience of someone else and just seeing what unfolds sort of going on their journey, on their inner journey with them. It's like you're a companion on someone's uh, journey, listening to them fully, not saying, hey, no, let's go this direction. Let's go that direction. No, your direction is bad. You know, you're, you're stupid or all the judgments, all those things are or I'm not gonna go on your journey with you, sort of detaching, right? It's, it's all those things that block empathy is, is another component. It's the being present with the person going with them uh, on their journey until they feel heard, seen, and uh, acknowledged. But I think that that's 
sort of the basics of empathy, but what I'm really interested in is the mutuality of it. Usually empathy is defined as this individualistic, you know, you as an individual listening to someone else, but I think it's really about the mutuality of, of the listening and measuring empathy and how well are we listening to each other. And uh, that's usually not how it's uh, uh, kind of defined. It's more defined in that generally, I think in the culture is this individualistic listening or not listening. And I think we need to see it as this mutuality. And that's what the empathy circle practice is about. It's about, it's not going to a therapist where the therapist, for example, is an, just listens to you and that's it. And you pay them money, you go on your way. An empathy circle is, we, hey, we listen to each other, right? It's this mutuality of, of listening to each other. And that's, that's really a, a more fuller sense of, uh, of empathy and setting aside those what would be maybe blocks to empathy, judgment, sympathy, you know, projecting your own self onto them. Uh, ignoring people, et cetera. And we could go, go for quite a while into all the ways that uh, empathy is, is blocked, that, that state, that way of being is blocked, yeah. Well, when you're in a one-way situation where you are listening to another, like I am listening to you in, in an interview, or a therapist listening to a patient, uh, it seems easier at some level because there's material coming and you have to focus as the listener and in, in thinking about just what's being said and, and, and observing and then reformulating back. When it's in the mutuality story, what happens is that mentor starts thinking, well, he has something to say about what you just said. And oftentimes we feel the need to jump in. And so well, then we restrain. I'm going to hold back. I know I have to be listening, but that thought, sort of dissipates over time because I'm still listening. And the ability for you to retain intelligent thoughts as the, the length of the person draws out, you, you don't get a chance to, to, you don't even remember it anymore. And so that, 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 I think that's one of the biggest challenges I face, Edwin, in the notion of mutuality, because you want to be respectful. You've got all these other things you're going on and focusing on listening to what's being said. And yet, if it's in a mutual discourse where I can rebut, I need to know the facts. If I'm rebutting a thing you said, I, well, you said it was 9% this, and I have to remember that fact. But if I start focusing on that fact, then I lose the ability to listen. Yeah. So when, as you're listening to me, all these different things are coming up in your mind. And if you just keep listening, they're, they're going to start fading uh, away and you kind of I don't know if you're sensing that as a as a problem or a concern or or you well, want to be able to yeah I think of it as a challenge mm -hmm. in mutuality that's uh -huh. the point. yeah because Let's as see. much as it's when it's one way you know the rules but when you are in a discourse where there's two people talking with one another not at one another where there's mutual listening going on it's very, what point do you start tipping it back to, well, what I want to say as opposed to what I'm listening to you say? Yeah, the uh, empathy circle, we, we put in times. So uh, first uh, you do uh, reflective listening. So as a speaker, you pause periodically so the listener can reflect back their understanding just to sort of check, am I really hearing you? And I, am I really following you? Which 
has the listener has to really focus to be able to say that back. No so that really puts your presence. It's like it. It's like y- your presence has to really be there. Your attention has to be there, focused, and uh, so you don't. You, so you can do that reflection. Then the speaker says some more. They say some more. They correct you if they if uh, if uh, you're not reflecting. You're recapping what you heard. And then you know, we have like time limits of five minutes because some people could go on for hours, right? No and doubt. then they go on for hours and what else happens in that? It's like, you start thinking, oh, let me out of here. It's like, <laughs> I, have all this, I have all this kind of stuff that I'd like to say too. They're not listening. I just can't even find a way in to you know, share. So uh, you disengage, like you're saying, yeah, you just detach, you feel a sense of disconnection. And uh, the reflection actually helps with the sense of connection too, right? Sure. When, when you're reflecting back, it feels like, oh, I, I have that sense like, oh, I, I stay connected because I'm reflecting back. And that sense of connection uh, feels, feels good. But then we have time turn limits of like uh, five minutes or six minutes. So it does turn. So the attention uh, shifts exactly you've got a time five minute little sign that you just held up as an example so we have a little sign that we hold up facilitator holds so that it has a sense of uh, mutuality and I, it's sort of like training wheels you know like i've done these empathy circles in my family where we go maybe two two and a half hours or even three hours you know talking about some family issues and then suddenly we just stop doing the time limits or even the reflection because we've sort of tipped into a state of mind where everybody's really attuned and listening to each other. We don't even need these uh, training wheels kind of, of the, of the empathy circle. So, because we we've stepped into that deep awareness and space and, and listening uh, for everyone. My observation, Edwin, for having done, I don't know, maybe myself, certainly over 50 empathy circles, is that that only happens after the first hour. It feels like just the human condition needs more than an hour for that to gel. At least when you're talking multiple people, I usually do with five people in total. And, and then the second hour we get off the, I've got to tell you shit. I've got to drive my agenda. This is everything I know. And I'm going to proud, you know, show off all the things that are on my chest. In the second hour, it feels like inevitably we're using the material from what's happened before because we've been doing the listening. And then we're integrating that into what we have to, to say. Yet my point about the mutuality challenge is in real life, I think we're far too quick to get back onto my horse. What I want to say, interruption, because time is limited. You know, I, I have a dinner party going to in, in one and a half hours. I don't have time for this. And, and so you kind of need to rush in all your stuff. And I feel that time mm. is one of the biggest anxiety producers at some level, at probably at a, at a meta level, as well as in the crux of our conversation. Yeah, I, I totally with you there, that sense of time, that uh, empathy takes time, that uh, I think it was Stephen Covey, the leadership 
uh, guru, you know, he says, empathy takes time, but it doesn't take anywhere as much time as when you have to go clean up the mess that you didn't, that you created by not giving it time, right? It's like you have relationships, right? That take, you know, you're having years and years of conflict because you didn't take that initial time uh, to begin with. So uh, I think it, there, there's sort of a, you know, like a penny wise pound foolish aspect with time. Like I have to do this right now by not putting that time up front to have that, uh, that listening, you know, you're going to pay, you're going to pay for it somewhere. Maybe it's your health, maybe it's, you know, stress, maybe it's just poor relationships. Uh, so I, I'm, yeah, time, times, I think time's a big issue around empathy. So another thing that, so when we talk about the, the splitting of hairs and the different versions of empathy, I was and am still interested in the difference between cognitive and affective, the idea of hearing what you say and seeing what you feel or, or feeling what you feel. And in my experience, and probably because I'm not as strongly versed, whenever I'm trying to gauge without judgment someone's feelings, I feel it's a lot more treacherous, the zone, as opposed to regurgitating what someone else has just said to me. Well, you've said this to me. This is how I, I, I heard what you say. But if I put that aside and I say what I saw and feel, you know, some kind of perplexity or the choice of word that you use as a label to describe that feeling is, feels a lot more unnerving for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're, you're, well, I, you're talking about the cognitive and emotional empathy. That's a term that's used a lot. Uh, I don't use it because I think it doesn't really fit very well. I, um, for example, when we do the empathy circle, you know, you, you can reflect someone like you're saying, just sort of word for word, you know, what the person says. But I find that over time, like you're saying, oh, after the first hour or so, you kind of go deeper. So I don't like judge people like you're just, you know, it's just saying the words to begin with. It's just like reflect back, you know, the best you can. And it's really the, the role of the speaker to say whether they've been heard or not. You know, the goal is for the speaker to have a sense of feeling heard, seen, and acknowledged. And so that you're kind of like, as a speaker, you're kind of like the teacher, like you're sh sharing. If somebody just reflects back the words and it's like, no, I don't feel really seen. I'm feeling frustration. I'm feeling a sense of frustration. I didn't hear that feeling of frustration reflected back. So I guess I'm putting mm -hmm. some, a lot of responsibility on the speaker to be heard as they would like to be heard. And then over time too, the, the listener kind of gets better at it. I think you just, so I kind of just let people start wherever they are and then sort of slowly get uh, better at maybe naming feelings like you're saying, because that does bring the conversation to a deeper level. If you can, maybe someone is frustrated, they'll say that they're frustrated and you say, oh, I hear you're frustrated. They might not say they're frustrated, but you can see that they're very frustrated. And then you can sort of name that because you've sort of seen it and sensed it and felt it. And then they'll say, yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. And, you know, they feel really good because you've been, you've seen who, who they are and you've sort of sensed into to them. So, uh, 
in terms, I don't kind of differentiate the, the cognitive and emotional because it's so intertwined and so inter, I don't even think you, and from what I'm hearing from the academics, they're already starting to move away from that term when academics said in 10 years, they won't even talk about that any, anymore because it's just such an ineffective uh, breakdown. But I would say there's a difference between empathy, sensing into, or relate, and then relational empathy and imaginative empathy. So like, and I could just describe that if you wanted what I'm seeing is imaginative empathy. So if we're, we're, if we're talking here, you're empathizing with me, I can sense your presence, you know, you're really sent, listening to me and you have a lot of presence, a lot of concentration, and I can feel that. So you're sensing into to me, empathizing with me. The imaginative empathy is what I would say is a role taking. And a, a clear example would be is, if you and I now took on roles, like I said, uh, like uh, it's like an actor, like you know Meryl Streep being Margaret Thatcher or or Julia Childs, you you take on the role of someone, and I could take on the role of uh, Julia Childs, and you could take on the role of uh, of, of uh, Margaret, Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher, and then we would have a dialogue with each other. So we're stepping into these roles and speaking for, from what comes up in us in, in those roles. And, we're, we're, and it's like, you can sort of embody that. And I see this in mediation too. If you've ever done like mediation training, you do practicing this uh, imaginative role-taking, you create scenarios of conflict and you take on roles of a business or a family or people in conflict. And uh, then you speak from, from that role. So that's a very clear, you know, delineation between just listening to someone, sensing into them, and then this imaginative empathy of stepping into a role. And you can take on any role. I can take on the role of what's it like to be a banana, you know? It's like, right? I, what does it feel like and have a dialogue? Um, I think that's what, uh, um, you know, the, the scientist, you know, when, with, the, with relativity, Einstein, right? It's like he imagined himself being a beam of light. Like, what is that? What is my experience being a beam of light with the trains and, you know, all this kind of these different, he would take on these different roles of the objects and sort of experience it from that role. And so the imaginative empathy taking on roles is just like unlimited. You know, we can take on any kind of a role. And so that, that's how I would delineate instead of, cognitive and emotional, I would make it just empathy, maybe relational empathy, the mutuality level of empathy, and then imaginative empathy taking, uh, taking on, on different roles like that. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. To use your term, Edwin, I would characterize imaginative empathy like that 
very much a practice version because we we say that reading well-written novels fiction is also a great way to get to understand other people to the extent that they're written with nuance you can start to lean into the feelings and expressions and experiences of a if you're a man a, a female character or you know such you know different types of people so you can imagine into these other roles yeah. the, 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 the area i wanted to get into was following what you said is this notion in society of masks i'm not talking about covid the the one where we have these projections of who we are and and so you can project tranquility and and listening but and sub and and put aside your passions because in order for me to be able to listen without judgment i have to know how to not let that get the better of me you might trigger me with a word and uh so i have to i have to use a, a sense of restraint not to let that trigger override the my ability to listen to you and then on the other side there's passion where you got something really you want to say and it's been my observation that the more passionate you are, the harder it is for you to listen to the other. So on the one hand, you've got this mask story, which probably has good values in terms of allowing you to, to listen better because you're putting aside your own ego. And yet at some level, there's a notion of not allowing tapping into your own passions. And, and especially when you get into the mutuality story, it may be hard to go go places when you are living behind a mask and not allowed to live your passion. Yeah, that the thing with the, the mask, it's like a lot of times empathy is seen as is uh, neutral. It's like you're 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 not being you. But I think it's actually you're being a deeper you, you're bringing your presence uh, forward. So it's not like a neutral thing. It's a, it's an action. So as you're listening to someone or as you're listening to me, you might be setting aside some judgments or some like, you know, you wanted to be doing something else or, or whatever, you're setting all that aside and bringing your full presence uh, forward, which is something, it's a lot, it's huge, you know, to bring your presence forward. So I don't see empathy as a, as a neutral. I think it's very, it's a very, it's a stance. It's a very strong uh, stance. Um, and uh, sort of a strong way of being. You might be setting aside your judgments, but are we really our judgments? You know, are we really our, our, are we really our stereotyping of other people? Are we really, you know, are trying to dominate other people? Is that who we really are? You know, it's like you're setting aside those things. I think to bring a, a deeper, stronger, uh, more meaningful sense of yourself uh, forward and, this whole thing about empathy being neutral, I don't see it that way. Again, at another, at another angle is that when you're empathic with someone, your oxytocin level goes up. There's physiological stuff that's happening. You're becoming calmer. You're becoming more relaxed. Your cortisol is being counteracted with uh, oxytocin and your field, your depth of field, your field dependent thinking, which is the space of how you can make decisions, it becomes broader and wider. So I think you actually make a better uh, decisions. I saw this that term field dependent thinking in some IDO, you know, uh, human centered design work where they talk about uh, 
the, the space that you make your decisions from, there's a, there's a constellation of different feelings, uh, ideas, and the bigger, broader your field of, uh, of that is uh, the better your decision-making or even the deeper your decision-making. So I see empathy as not neutral, as I was saying, but a very strong presence. And, and uh, Kyle Rogers also talks about it as being a strong, calm, you know, way, way of being that's very, it's not easy for people, a lot of people just to have that sense of uh, groundedness and calmness to be able to listen to others. And you can be passionately for empathy, right? Yeah. And the empathy circle is say anything you want. Right. There's, it's total free speech. I always make it a point that in the empathy circle, bring up any feeling, you know, can be anger, it can be passion, it's whatever you want to bring up you are welcome to bring it up. And not only that, it will be heard, seen, and acknowledged, right? It's not going to be shut down. So you can be as passionate as you want. And someone will say, well, I'm really hearing a great deal of passion. You're really a real enthusiasm. You're really, really, this is really meaningful for you. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and when we take this into society or where, where we're not in the structured empathy circle, where we we look at dialogue and debate in society, which seems to be in such a crippled state to, today. How how can we? I mean, I, what are the types of? What's your viewpoint on how we can improve dialogue in society? Just because you know, actually having the structured approach is one thing, but for everyone who's listening, they're they're going to go and maybe go to work or have a meeting they're going to have dinner and and we're struggling it seems to be able to dive into conversations where we know we are at odds with one another you you hear people constantly saying well i don't speak to people in my family because they're on the other side of the spectrum it, but it also can be niggly little things that have happened in our relationships and and it, and it just seems that we've we've gotten to a standstill in and and it's not just in the United States, it's propagated by media who are are needing to run down a certain political path in order to get eyeballs to be paid for their business model. So they're pushing singular slants, and then you you say, well, that's the one I want to listen to. So you go to that ecosystem. I was wondering what what your thoughts are on how do we get to have more meaningful conversations in general in life. Yeah, how do we really shift the whole culture, which seems to be sort of against empathy and sort of this dysfunctional, when dysfunctional me, me, me. comes so to, It's yeah. a lot about me, uh -huh. me, me, yeah. and my topics, and I'm right, my facts are better than yours, what I believe is right, and you're wrong. Yeah, and the self-righteousness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, the judgments, and, and I mean, we're kind of like swimming at it. It's like, hey, what do we do with this? It, it's definitely, definitely a challenge. I'll say one, one part of that is if by doing the empathy circle, I see it as sort of a, an empathy battery recharging station, <laughs> right? You, you go there and you start getting heard. And it's like, we all have that need to be heard, seen and acknowledged, right? It's like, there's just something that our body craves that at least I, I seem, so that's what it seems like to me. And so when you're, if you don't get that and it's like, I have to fight, you know, for that being seen, you just go out there and it's a, it's a battle for the attention of, of others, right? So, 
if you do an empathy circle, it's like, oh, I get seen and heard and acknowledged. It's like my need for being seen and heard and acknowledged is sort of filled. And then I hear it over and over again. People say, oh, I did the empathy circle. Now when I go with my family, it's like I don't have this need to sort of battle to be heard. It's like I, I have more space, more sort of calmness. I can actually hear you know, what my father is saying because usually I just, he kind of triggers me, but oh, I actually have this space to hear uh, hear and see him. And so it's a, you know, it's a step to get your empathy battery charged. So when you go into the, that crazy world of the empathy deficit, you know, you've got more resilience to kind of turn things around. You can maybe have more space to listen to others and then they feel seen and heard. And then, you know, it can be sort of a ripple effect. But I do think we need a bigger cultural shift and that's what I'm doing. We haven't talked about that, but- That's I'm right, I want to speak Congress. about next. Yeah. yeah, I'm running for Congress with the empathy as a message. And, you know, it's like, hey, we need a cultural shift. We need to place empathy. And for me, that's just mutual listening, that we're willing to listen to each other and hear each other out uh, as primary social, you know, political, cultural uh, values. And so that's, that, that's the, uh, the message I have so, so that we can scale it up from just sort of this individual, you know, you get your empathy and then you get kind of beaten down by the culture to, hey, we need to have a whole cultural shift to make this a primary social uh, value. And I think that takes a, a movement. And, you know, that's what I'm trying to, uh, you lead, yeah, you lead the empathy <laughs> movement. You know, I see your book there, you lead. Well, that's what we should be leading is an empathy movement and getting the politicians to uh, listen to each other and model it. Imagine if George Bush and, uh, not George, but um, Biden and Trump would have had an empathy circle instead of a debate. You know, I mean, that would have like shifted through the whole culture. It's like, it's like, oh, this is, this is how we do it. And that's what I actually did. The first thing I did running for Congress here in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, I reached out to the other candidates. I said, hey, let's do an empathy circle. And I was able to do it with uh, two of the out of the uh, five. Those, you know, so it was three of us in the circle, and we did an empathy circle, you know, right off the bat. And someone watched it. A woman watched it, and she said it was so great to see this. It's like you're everybody listening. She just felt such gratitude just to see, you know, constructive dialogue going on. And she said, "I want you all three to be in Congress." <laughs> Because that's what she wants to see in Congress is the representatives actually listening to each other and dialoguing and hearing each other. So, yeah. So I want to um, just circle back on one thought you mentioned, which is debate. Because for me, a great debater knows inside out the arguments on the other side, which essentially means that that person has done the homework and if you will, has listened to what the other side is truly saying, not just the words, and thinking about how quickly can I debunk that. In, in real debate houses where you're really at it, you, you need to know inside out the arguments of the other side. And, and to some degree, it's really interesting to use debate as a practice where you don't even know which side you're going to defend up until the day mm. they say, hey, Edwin, you're going to take right and the other one's going to take left or, you know, black and white or whatever. And, um, and then you, you have to then debate that with full in, intensity on that side, regardless of whether that's what you believe. 
And so I think debate has been polluted as a technique to listen to one another, because really, if you listen deeply to what the other person's saying, on top of that, the chances are you're going to get a better rebuttal because you're not just going to speak my language on top of your language. I heard you say this. I'm going to be able to swing and sway about what you say. And then you come up with your position. And then the other person should, well, I heard you say this, and this is what's wrong with that. Or, you know, of course, they do have to apply judgment in the case of debate, because at some level, you need to make a choice. I wanted to end, end or at least this other thought, which is that somehow I see typically we in the United States, there's typically two parties. I mean, of course, there are independents. But essentially, I think of you uh, being in a, there's this one team on the left, and there's another team on the right, or I think of it without being political bias, but you would be the the referees. And we kind of need to have all three, just like this woman was referring to. You need to have referees. You need to have, in the the House of Commons in England, we call it the Speaker, just like in the the, the House of Representatives in America. And it's less the Speaker and more the the listener. Yeah, so I I, I see that with the dynamics that I see as an underlying dynamics is that I see, you know, community out there, people arguing with each other I go and listen to one side and then I go listen to the other side. So I actually offer that listening to the different sides, but it's beyond that. It's like then supporting the sides and talking to each other. Right. And so that's sort of the next step. And then the next step is that, Hey, I'm going to, how about we do training? So you become mediators or the listeners or the facilitators so that they can each learn the practice of how to be facilitators. So it's sort of a cultural shift by being willing to listen first, uh, inviting the others to listen back, listen to each other, and then learn how to listen to each other. So I guess I'm trying to shift the, the battle component to a, a listening component to put the, the mutual listening front and, and center. And in terms of, if you're talking about debate, you hear the terms uh, straw man and steel man, right? Straw man is you make these, you know, these kind of unscrupulous arguments that they're just, you, you, create, you, you create a something that you can tear it down, but it's not really, you know, authentically what you're, or what the other person said, that's the straw man. And then the steel man is that you can reflect back, you understand the argument that the other person is making even better than uh, they're making it themselves. And then you can have your response. And that, 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 that has a real, that's a very, it's sort of merging the battle, the, the, the debate, right. the win-lose into, you know, it's kind of bring some empathic uh, awareness to it. And I imagine it's going to help your, you know, having a real sense of integrity in terms of your debate is going to having that empathic sense. But I think we can even move past the battle to really making it about, it's no longer, you know, putting everybody into the ring, but everybody listening to each other constructively. And uh, like you said, after you get past the first hour or so, people are kind of moving into a deeper realm where kind of more creativity, innovation uh, can take place. So yeah, I'm, I'm for sort of shifting the whole culture uh, to placing this uh, you know, mutual listening kind of as a primary value.
Where I, I have spent my time is in business and talking about trying to bring empathy into business. And amongst the things that makes people less open to it, there's this notion of, well, if I listen to you, I'm going to cave into you. If I listen to you, that's I'm weak. I, I should be the one dictating the great power, everything that I need to say, and I'm the one that knows, and I'm the best. And, and then there's this time factor. Because, bloody hell, you know, if I spend all my time listening, I have to decide, I have to operate, I have to do things. And in the political field, you could argue in the business in the same kind of way, you have to get voted for. And the challenge we have in today's world is, is that if you sound like you're saying the same thing as your opponent, then the narrative, you know, what do you, what, you know, and then, and the way it's so combative and gladiatorial in the way you do the advertisements and, and, you know, shoot down your opponent, uh, whether it's some personal or professional thing we've, we've, we've lost. And I think this is also true in society, this ability to, to give the time to listen and, and uh, yeah, connect back into really how absolutely unimportant we are on the face of this earth and, and, and get, get, move aside the ego and then unite under some bigger ideas to why we are all together. We, we get so hook, hooked up on the size of my car, the title I have, the fact that someday you need to win though to get the job. And so it, there's a there's a dynamic that's very difficult to play especially when you've got a gladiatorial situation at the end of the day <clears throat> they can't vote for three candidates they've got to vote for one. Yeah, with with the gladiatorial uh model I, I see that as well even our justice system is a gladiatorial right it's like you hire two lawyers aka yeah. uh gladiators to battle it, battle out to come to uh truth. And uh, then there's a judge, external judgment uh, versus all the parties coming together, having that uh, deeper dialogue to work through. And I think the solutions that come out through that deeper dialogue are, are a deeper uh, agreement and it's something people can live with and they feel better about it in the long run. And those people who are striving to, you know, to be heard for the car and all that, a lot of it is wanting to be seen and acknowledged. But if you've got that in, in the dialogue, in your family, it, with your friends, you're, you're seen. I don't think you need all those trappings to, to, to be seen and, and uh, you know, to be considered important or relevant or, you know, so I, I do think it's a different, you know, it, it's, it's more of a deficit. It's more of a hunger for something, right? And, and that hunger is really that that uh, empathic presence and connection and care and love i think that come out of that one of the tools that i've heard used and i've occasionally used it in, in mediating two opposing sides is to ask both sides to find something about the other side's argument with which they agree so, you know, Edwin, so you and I are gladiatorial, like whatever. Uh, but the thing you said at the beginning about the fact that you like blue skies, mm -hmm. I agree with you. I really like blue skies too. 
And then, then the return, the favor is returned. And that form of bridge building is uh, delicious, you know, because it, it takes away all of a sudden a lot of the prickliness. Because, you know, actually we do have something in common. You know, we both have two feet, two arms, you know, two ears. And we have commonalities, but we, we tend to forget those. What, are, what would be one or two gifts that you'd give to people as they approach, uh, they're the going on and, and looking for in getting more involved in deeper, more meaningful conversations, dialogues? Yeah, well, I'm hearing there what you're saying is the uh, finding that commonality and we have a sense of commonality, we have a sense of, of connection and that connection feels pretty good. I mean, disconnection is painful, like right? disconnection is high degree of cortisol. Uh, connection is oxytocin, you're kind of feeling warm and, and uh, good. So uh, I would say, you know, going for that, going for that uh, that uh, oxytocin is a way way of, of being and and the sense of connection the the one thing that I do see is that universal sense of connection is people value is to mutually value the listening and the dialogue we at some level everybody values that right so that if we can make the 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 listening the empathy as that shared value that we have that no matter what the problem is you know, whatever the conflict is, that we can come together, we value coming together and dialoguing it about it until it kind of gets worked out to everyone's satisfaction. If we can make that as a primary social value, I think it'll just, it'll just uh, transform uh, society. So have the intention to, to spread that, uh, that way of being and, and that message, I think is uh, one thing. We can do. And like, like you said at the beginning, it's actually really quite powerful when you give all of your attention and are fully present. And, and like you say, you get the oxytocin going, you feel more relaxed. And, and on top of that, the chances are, I don't know who said it exactly. I, yeah, it was, um, maybe it was, um, seven habits not covey or maybe it was covey said basically if, if you go into a room and you meet somebody and all you do is ask them questions and listen to them there's a high probability that at the end of the evening they will say that you were the most important most interesting person they've ever met and yet you said nothing all you did was listen yeah people appreciate that makes it's um makes for a good pitch, I think, for why we should listen to one another more. Edwin, how can people follow what you're doing, uh, catch up with the movement, see some of your tools? I, I know you have a really robust site with so many resources. So give us uh, your social handles and sites yeah. to visit. Main website is cultureofempathy.com. You go to edwinforcongress.com too. That's the new site you know, for my, my campaign. So that'll lead you to yeah, a lot of other social media connections and Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and all that. Well, with this will be going live just before the vote. So those who are out in your CD8 district in San Francisco, Go and listen to Edwin Rutsch and check out the debate. And uh, with that, I have to thank you, Edwin. It has been a pleasure. That's the studio audience. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Mentor. Great talking to you. Good listener. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show or would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. I like the feel of a stranger Tucked around me, precipitating the danger To feel free, trust is a reason Still I won't tell the line I sit here passively, hope for your respect Anticipating the thrill of your intellect Maybe I tell myself, there's no use in me lying challenge I know soon we all die I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger to feel free trust in my reason and let me show you why I'm a convinced man practicing my lines I'm a convinced man Finds a convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, fit to the test. I'm a convinced man. I'm ready for an arrest. I'm a convinced man in the arms of a woman.
Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.